Amen. Wow. Thank you, Kent. What a wonderful time of worship. Uh, I enjoyed it so much at the last hour. I sat and watched it even this time. Man, y'all worshiped well this morning. That was good stuff. Uh, I, I hope you got a chance to be here last night. Man, the, the, the Burlington boys did a phenomenal job. What a blessing. You know, I, I, I was watching folks worship last night, and I was thinking, y'all are so blessed to have such a talented staff. Uh, here at the church. And Kent, thank you for leading us into worship. Uh, for those of y'all who haven't heard yet, if you've been under a rock, Chris and it, uh, Miranda had their baby, and the baby's doing well, so we're excited about that. Uh, the uh, Chris and, uh, leads the Thrive Service at night in our transitions group. Guys, I, I mentioned the staff for a couple reasons today. Last week, um, one of the deacons got up and asked if y'all would give uh, to the staff on October a card if you want to put something, a gift in a card or something like that, that would be awesome to help your pastors. Here's what I'd like. I, I don't want anybody to get confused. Y'all treat me very well. You're very generous to me. Y'all support me through your cooperative program gifts, and then y'all give me extra here to be here on the weekend and take time away from my family to be here. Here's what I'd really like. If any of you thought about giving me something, I'd prefer that you not, but I would prefer that you give something in lieu of that extra to the other staff. They have worked hard this last year, Amen. really, really hard, and uh, I appreciate them. So uh, uh, there's a little orange box out there. October is pastor appreciation, and not just the pastor who stands up and says something, uh, but it's pastors, people who shepherd your life, whether through youth or through uh, music or, or education or children or how they shepherd your life. I'd encourage you to think about them, and, and by the end of the month, uh, just, just share with them a, a card, if that's uh, what you can do, and a card and a little something if the Lord lays that on your heart. But I'd encourage you to do that. Uh, that would mean a lot to me. Uh, I am really glad you're here. I hope y'all don't mind if I change. Well, what a wonderful worship. I feel guilty about coming up and changing directions this morning, but I, I don't know if y'all know this. I'm a sports fan. Have any of y'all figured that out yet? But I kind of like sports. I guess it goes back to my days of playing big-time basketball. You know, uh, I don't understand the laughter. I was the starting center, center on the Niagara Elementary School basketball team. I was this tall when I was in uh, sixth grade. Uh, everybody else grew five to six inches between sixth and seventh grade. I didn't realize basketball wasn't my thing, but I did play baseball, and uh, I was okay. I really was an okay baseball player. I, if you don't mind me bragging, I'm going to. Uh, I, if you do mind, oh well. Uh, but I, I, uh, I, 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 for I played because I was this tall when I was young. I threw the ball about as hard as I did in college when I was in like seventh, eighth grade. So I started playing varsity baseball real young. Now, when you start playing varsity baseball real young, it means, especially if you're a pitcher, you get more opportunities to pitch than most guys do. And because of that, I held, after 1988, the most wins at Henderson County High School for a baseball pitcher for about 15 years. Held that until 2002. Yeah! Yeah! Now, what I, 
what I failed to tell you is that we had two guys who played with me who played in the SEC, and we also had it. So I'd give up like 10 runs, but we would score 14. But I still, we still won. Uh, uh, but but I, I did uh, uh, love baseball. I got to go and play a little bit of college. Threw my arm out, didn't play much college. Ended up going over to uh, golf and playing. But anyhow, enough about that. But I was the all-time winningest baseball pitcher for a long time. Now, our coach... He did something. He treated our program like it was professional. I mean, he just ran it from practices to everything. It was just big time, you know. And, and whenever you held a record, whether it be ERA or uh, 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 most wins or most strikeouts or most home runs or best batting average or career stats, he would put a big plaque outside of his office, and his office had like 20 of these plaques outside of them. And I'll never forget the day that they put the plaque for me up there most wins all time Henderson County Colonels, Nick Sandifer, 1985-1988. Oh, I loved it. It was awesome. Thought it was great. Well, my record got broke, as all records do, and, and I knew that. Didn't want to tell anybody I knew that, but I did know that. And so one time I was up visiting my parents, and I said, you know, I'm going to go see Billy Tom, who was our coach, Billy Tom Wayne. I'm going to go see Billy Tom. And I was just going to go by and see him. What I really wanted is to see if he still had that, and I wanted it. <laughs> and so I went to his office and talked to him five or six minutes. How you doing? Good to see you, coach. Everything going well? Da, 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 da. We talked. After a few minutes, I kind of broached the subject. I said, Billy Tom, somebody broke your all-time wins record. He said, they did? Oh, yeah, they did. You know, of course, it wasn't nearly as important to him as it was to me. And uh, I said, Billy Tom, do you still happen to have that plaque? with my name on it. And he says, oh, Nick, I didn't think you'd want that. I threw that away. <laughs> Guys, if you live long enough, all of your trophies will become trash. <laughs> in baseball and in every area. We try to build our bank accounts, and then when our health fails, it just seems kind of meaningless. We work hard getting degrees and titles, and yet there will come a time when no one will care. We work really hard at building relationships, but even those fail in this life. The Bible says that we are in bondage to decay in this life, and everything around loses its luster. That's why the gospel of Jesus is such a treasure, because it never, it, it never grows old. In fact, as you get older, the sweeter it gets. As you move forward in life, the more hope it seems. And that treasure that we find in Jesus is something that doesn't fade away, it doesn't tarnish, it's a hope that outweighs everything in this world. And that's why it's so important to us to make sure that we share that hope with others. I went to seminary on the forever plan. I started in 1993, finished in 2000. That two-and-a-half-year degree, took me seven. Uh, the reason why is because I pastored full-time the entire time that I went, and they didn't have online classes back then like they do now, and so I had to travel from near Owensboro up to Louisville. Well, I piecemealed how we would do that together, but typically I fell into a routine where I would go up and take one class on Thursday night and then take three classes on Friday. And that was kind of my life for a couple years. It was a tough life. Uh, but uh, we grew, as a group of guys who were doing this together, a really close, special bond. And on Thursday night when we would get done, we would all go, always go out and eat. You know, and one night we were up in Lexington. We decided we were going to go eat at Pizza Hut. Now, we were going to the Pizza Hut on Shelbyville Road. Now, for those of you who don't know Louisville, let me describe it for you. Lexington Avenue is where Southern Seminary is. Quaint, nice, beautiful picture 
awesome. But about a mile away, it turns into Shelbyville Road, and it turns into this six-lane monstrosity with a turning lane in the middle of it and cars everywhere. Well, about where it changes, it intersects with Breckenridge Lane. Anybody know where I'm talking about? Breckenridge Lane is about a six-lane road that comes through there with a turning lane on each side. Well, we're driving that night. I, I... I'm, I'm driving, I think. I don't remember if I... No, I was a passenger. But anyhow, we're, we're driving to the uh, uh, Shelbyville Road Pizza Hut from Seminary. So you, for those of y'all who are familiar, you got it in your mind where I'm at. We're sitting at the stoplight, and across from us in the turning lane, there is a black Lexus. Now, back in those days, Lexuses weren't as common as they are today. And if you had one of those, you had something, you know. And, and uh, if you have one of those today, you probably still have something. But you really had something back then, okay? Well, the, there was this black Lexus, and she was in the, uh, this car was in the turning lane, and I noticed this old beat-up pickup truck, and you'll date yourself if you laugh at this, but it looked like a Sanford and Son truck, pulled up from behind, and this old truck, the door opens up. And the guy runs up to the Lexus, and I think, oh, my goodness, we're going to see a carjacking right here in the middle of Louisville. Well, apparently the person in the Lexus knew the, the man because she opened her door. Well, they talk for a second, and then their turning lane turns green. He runs back to the truck. She closes her door, and they peel off left onto Breckenridge Lane in toward the city. She didn't recognize when she closed her door that her purse had fallen out. And I'm sitting here thinking, a lady driving a Lexus in Louisville loses her purse. Not good. So I said, I pull over here, and they pulled over, and I played Frogger along those six lanes of traffic, ran out and got that purse, come back, we go down to the Pizza Hut, and I, I hated to do it, but I had to look through the purse to see whose it was. And so I looked through the purse, and, and it is this 26-year-old dark-headed, beautiful, drop-dead gorgeous woman, okay, driving a Lexus. And I thought, boy, she's got a lot going for her, you know, and then, uh, but I still didn't know how to contact her. We'll call her Lisa, okay? Her card said, attorney at law. And then it had an emergency contact number. I called the number, and I said, uh, uh, ma'am, I've got your purse, which is probably not the right way to start that conversation. <laughs> but, but anyhow, I said, ma'am, I've got your purse. I said, uh, I, you dropped it on. She said, oh, I've been looking for you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Where are you at? I'll come get it. I said, well, we're at the Shelbyville Pizza Hut. Do you know where that's at? Yeah, I'll be right there. And she said, take me about 20 minutes. I said, that's fine. We haven't got our pizza yet. So we eat. And while we're sitting there, remember a few weeks ago I talked to you when the Lord wants you to do something, you feel that tension rising. It's like, oh, you want me to do this? But I felt the Lord telling me that I was supposed to witness to this woman and talk to her about the love of Jesus. Well, I made a mistake. When I felt that, I told these preachers who were sitting around. Because you know what happens when you tell, don't you? You're stuck. you got to do it. <laughs> you know. And I told them. And while I'm sitting there, all of a sudden that tension starts rising because I'm sitting there thinking, what am I going to tell this lady? I mean, she's 26 years old. She's drop-dead gorgeous. She's driving a Lexus. She's an attorney at law. What am I supposed to say? Your life could be so much better. You know, I mean, I mean, 
I'm getting really afraid, but I'd made this commitment. I thought it was what the Lord wanted me to do. I knew it wasn't the devil telling me to witness to her. So I thought, okay, well, I'm going to do it. And so I go out there and I ask one of my buddies to go out and wait with me because I didn't want to be out there, you know. And so I'm out there waiting to talk to this lady. And uh, she pulls up, and she pulls up, and when she pulls up, she kind of reaches out for a person. I say, well, ma'am, God wants me to talk to you, which is probably also not the right way to start that conversation. But I didn't know what to say, so here's what came out of my mouth. And I was just kind of letting the Lord lead. I said, ma'am, I know it looks like your life is all together. And before I could get another word out of my mouth, she crumbles. I mean, she breaks down and starts sobbing. It takes her about a half a minute to control herself. And blubbering, she says, it might look like I have my life all together, but my life is a mess. Of course, I go on to share the gospel with her. She gets out of the car. We talk to her about the gospel and tell her about the treasure that can be found in Jesus. Guys, I tell you that because people everywhere, everywhere, no matter how much it looks like they have, are in bondage to decay. And everything they have is not satisfying. It doesn't matter how many relationship experiences they have. There's always bondage to decay. It doesn't matter how much money that they've made. There's always wanting more. It doesn't matter how many titles are behind their name. There's always something missing. Everybody lives in this bondage to decay, and everyone needs the treasure that only the gospel provides. That's why as a church, it is our job to make sure we take the message that Jesus can change your life to those all around us. Did you know, uh, this was from Hebron the other day, I did this last Saturday, from Hebron, uh, if you draw a 10-mile ring around Hebron, there's about 300, I think it was 397,000 people in a 10-mile circle, 397,000. At best-case scenario, about 14% of them will be in church on this Sunday. Best case. So what's that, uh, 37, uh, 52,000, 55,000? That means there's 340,000 people, best case, not in church. Now let's assume that maybe, let's assume that 20, 30, 40% of those folks know Jesus and are saved, okay, who are not here. That means there's 200,000 people who are in bondage to decay, who no matter what they do, what they gain, what they have, who they know, who they're with, what they experience, are living a life where nothing seems to satisfy. And we have the answer. That's why as a church, we have to make sure that our job is to be about taking life change to others. I had a mentor who used to tell me, guys, the main thing is keep the main thing the main thing. As a congregation, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Well, what is the the main thing? Well, we look to Jesus and we see what Jesus' main thing was. He says in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. He came to see lost people saved. And I hate to sound trite or corny, but if it's good enough for Jesus, it ought to be good enough for us. Our job as a church is to take life change outside of this place. Jesus said it something like this. You are to go make disciples 
of all nations. So are we doing that? Well, we should be. We absolutely should be. And, 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 and we should constantly evaluate our effectiveness by how hard we're working to take life change outside this place. See, churches get trapped in evaluating our effectiveness by a lot of other things. Did it entertain me? Did we make budget? You know, did, did we have anybody get mad this week? <laughs> our effectiveness should be evaluated by, is anybody's life changing by what we're doing? Jesus was all about the lost. That's, hey, love, we're going to spend the rest of our time in Luke 15. If you have your Bibles, follow along, check me out, make sure that I'm telling you the truth. You're skeptical because you're Baptist. You know, you're supposed to be. You're supposed to check me out. Luke 15 starts this way. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. Let me just say this. Lost people loved Jesus. Sinners loved Jesus. He was so welcoming and warm and kind and good and loving and, and pure that lost people saw something in him and said, we love him. They should see the same in us. They, they loved him, but here's what happened. Religious people didn't like Jesus. Verse 2, the Pharisees and the scribes, the most religious of the day, part of the 14% sitting in church, not those on the outside looking in, they grumbled and complained and said, man, this man welcomes sinners. He eats with them. He's not good. And they didn't understand Jesus' mission. They didn't understand. His mission was to see these lost people come into the fold. His mission was to take life change outside of himself. His mission was to make sure that they experience something that lasts, not that which was in bondage to decay. And so that was his mission. Now, to explain his mission, he tells three parables in machine gun-like fashion. He tells a parable about a sheep that gets lost. He tells a parable about a woman who loses a coin. And he tells a parable about a man who has two sons and one goes crazy. And in these parables, we learn that lost people are extremely important to God, but we also learn what has to happen in a church if lost people are going to be important to us. Okay? So, let's dive in. So he told them a parable. What man of you has a hundred sheep? If he just loses one, what man wouldn't leave the ninety-nine and go out and search diligently to find that one which is lost? Who wouldn't do that? Now, I don't want to offend you, but I want to make sure that you see that you already know how to interpret the Bible without the preacher. Okay? Who is the shepherd in this parable? Jesus, God, Father, Heavenly Father. Okay? Everybody know that? Nod. I'm awake. I got you. Okay. Who are the sheep in this parable? Humanity, people, we are, us. So, so God is represented by the shepherd. People are represented by the sheep. Now, this is going to take lots of brain power, so figure this out. When he talks about lost sheep, he's talking about us, well, he's talking about lost people. Could be us. At one time was us. He's talking about lost people. Okay, now, would you agree with me that the point of this parable is trying to teach that lost people 
are the most important thing to God. Is that a stretch? No, I mean, that's what this is teaching. Lost people are the most important thing to God, and that means that lost people should be the most important thing to us. Now, if we're going to take that mindset and keep that main thing the main thing, and take life change to lost people outside of this arena, we're going to have to shift our priorities. Now, notice in this parable, in this parable, when all the sheep are in the pen, the shepherd's grooming, the shepherd's feeding, the shepherd's nurturing and loving, but if one goes astray, he drops everything and he goes after the one. If there is one lost person around, that should drive us as a congregation. That should be our motivation to see life change. But here's what I found in church. In church, everything presses us toward internalization. Y'all know what I mean by that? You put two people together, they start thinking about them and quit thinking about others. And that is so true in church. You know, the way we pick our songs, do we like it or not? The way that we schedule our time, does it work for me or not? The way that we spend our money, well, what benefit do I get out of that? the way that we program, everything we do inside of the congregation is driven by us. But if we are going to take life change out here, we've got to shift our priorities and start allowing the fact that 350,000 lost people live around us, living in bondage to decay, who don't have the hope that we have. We have to change our priorities. This should affect the way we pray. It should affect the way we budget. It should affect the way that we program. It should affect everything about us. The way we invest our time, we must change our priority. Now, I want to tell you, it's risky. It is risky to change <laughs> the focus. You know, have you ever thought of how risky it is to leave 99 sheep and go after one? I mean, my goodness, what if they get bored? We all know the shepherd's job is to entertain the the, the, those who are still in the fold, you know, and then, I mean, my goodness, what if, what if one of them starts connecting the dots and say, you know, the ch- shepherd, he only pays attention to those folks who are not here. Maybe I ought to just not be here. Now, I know that would never happen in a church, but imagine how risky this is. I, I, I'll be honest with you, when I work with the 400 churches, in in our region from Berea to Cincinnati I don't see a lot of things in common they're as different as you know Baskin Robbins flavors I mean they're so different but there's one thing I found in common with almost all of them in churches where they focus completely on themselves there's disgruntled sheep and in churches where they go after the lost people there's disgruntled sheep so if you're going to have disgruntled sheep either way why don't we do what God has called us to do and be about the business of making disciples in our world. And I want to give you another warning. Not only is it risky, some people might get mad. They will get mad. It's messy. <laughs> Do you know how, I mean, lost sheep are usually not beside still waters in light and green pastures. Lost sheep are usually in mud pits with slop up to their arm 
tits, I guess is what they have. You know, I mean, that's lost sheep, you know, I mean, and, and that's just the way life is. They have addictions and mixed up values and broken relationships and unappealing personal attributes. And, and here's the deal. When you deal with lost people, you deal with their mess. Let me let you in on a secret. Lost people act like lost people. Man, that's deep stuff. You ought to have to pay twice your tithe for that. You know, lost people act like lost people. They just do. Let me let you in on another little secret. When lost people come into church, sometimes they still act like lost people. And when lost people get saved, they don't always get it all right right away. Have you? You got all your mess worked out completely? Remember, life changes a process, but yet we expect people when they come in to have it all figured out. I'll never forget about Pee Wee. Uh, I, I won't tell you his real name, but Pee Wee was at my last church. This has been about 12 years ago now, I guess. Pee Wee was raised as a little kid in the neighborhood. It was a transitioning neighborhood. Houses were in decline. Most of them were rentals. In and out, drugs, different stuff around this area. Pee Wee was raised there, kind of after about 10 years old, kind of left to fend for himself, basically, kind of bouncing around from place to place in the area. He came to church for a couple years and then figured church wasn't enough for him, so he took off. But he had an aunt or someone who was still connected with the church, and so I was familiar with Pee Wee. But Pee Wee had grown up into a man who had a reputation. I mean, Pee Wee would fight you at the drop of a hat. And, I mean, he was crude. I mean, as crude as you could possibly be. His education, you can imagine, was extremely limited. He could cuss in a way that would make a, a sailor blush. I mean, he was a tough dude, Pee Wee was. So when he showed up about five years after I started my last church, everybody said, oh, my. He sat about over in here about halfway back. Uh, and uh, he usually had plenty of room. But anyhow, <laughs> Pee Wee... He came and he listened for about four or five weeks. And after about four or five weeks, he came forward and said, I'm ready. And I thought, for what? <laughs> I want to give my heart to Jesus. And of course, now usually when somebody does that, and in a Baptist church, here's how that typically works, about usually a week or maybe two weeks to get family there and whatnot, you baptize them. And what happens in that time period of delay is we typically work with someone to make sure they understand what it means to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Well, with Pee Wee, instead of baptizing him in two weeks, I waited four just to make sure it stuck, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but anyhow, you know, and it did. And I'll never forget the day that Pee Wee was coming to be baptized. I would start the service out by being in the baptismal waters, and I'd say, man, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let's rejoice and be glad in it. We're going to baptize today. We don't believe that the water saves you. We believe that Jesus' blood on the cross saves you. But baptism symbolizes that I believe. And so we were so excited about Pee Wee getting baptized. And I said, then today, and I turned, and Pee Wee was grinning from ear to ear and wearing a Budweiser shirt that had Budweiser written on it <laughs> about like that. Now, for those of y'all who were not raised Baptist, that might not be funny, but I'll tell you about it later, okay? <laughs> but anyhow, <laughs> what do you do? I'll tell you what I did. I baptized him. 
I turned him at a 45 degree angle and I baptized him. <laughs> I changed my baptismal speech. <laughs> but I baptized him because we're all a work in progress. None of us have it figured out. None of us are going to be all the way there. And so, you know, we, we shift our priorities. It's not about making us comfortable. It's about reaching lost people. Another thing that's got to happen is we've got to work hard. If we're going to take life change outside of this building, we've got to work hard. Now, Jesus tells a second parable. And in that second parable, he says, What woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses just one coin, doesn't light a lamp, she sweeps the house, she searches diligently until she finds it? What woman wouldn't do that? Um, Now, you might be saying, Who in the world would look that hard for a coin? Now, if you can't imagine somebody looking that hard for a coin, women, imagine if you lost your diamond ring. How hard would you look? And if you can't imagine somebody looking that hard for a diamond ring, imagine if, if your kid had a special toy that they lost. Now, we had a sleepy time, Barney, when my first colicky daughter was born. <laughs> you remember? And if she didn't have sleepy time, Barney, she didn't, and we didn't. And so we, if we lost sleepy time, Barney, everything stopped. We, she, I was in her room just about a week and a half ago, and she still sleeps with that thing. Weird. But anyhow... <laughs> Special toy. And men, if you can't imagine somebody searching that hard for a diamond ring or a, a kid's toy, imagine if you lost the remote control for the TV. You know, <laughs> you'd tear the house apart looking for that thing. Everything stops. You know what I found about lost things? You can tell how valuable they are by who's willing to look and how hard they look. If that's true, Burlington Baptist Church are lost people important to us. Guys, we've got to aggressively search. It's what God has called us to do. The shepherd looked, the woman searched. When something is valuable, you search. Think about it for a moment. If I told you I lost a quarter on my way into church today, somewhere, a few kids might say, yeah, I, mean, I ought to look for that to get a piece of gum, you know. If I told you I lost a $100 bill somewhere in the church today, there would be those of you who feel led by the Spirit to get up and go look for it right now, you know. I mean, you can tell how valuable something is. Are lost people valuable? We've got to invest our time in lost people. We have to. Uh, Jesus won sinners by investing in sinners, by loving them. We're probably not going to go out here and meet someone we don't know, hit them over the head with the Bible, run through about six verses, convince them that we're right, and change the world. Probably not going to happen. Some people get saved that way. Rare. Most of the time it works this way. We invest in people's lives. We love people around us, no matter how messed up they are. They see joy. They hear about our faith in Jesus and then we tell them how that faith can become real to them that's how it works we just got to invest our time um, now I know some of you say well, I don't have time well what are you spending your time on stuff that will last forever or stuff that will last this week I think there's another type of work to be done. We've got to work hard. We've got to uh, 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 
we got to change our priorities and become lost people first in our mindset. But then I think we also have to, while we're here, provide an attractive environment for people. If we're going to see the lives changed of those outside of this place, we have to make sure that they see our lives changed. They have to look at us and see something about us. And I think this is one of the points of the final story of Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son. Now, I'm not going to put all of this parable up here. You can follow me if you'd like. But a man has two sons, and one of them's unhappy, and he goes to his dad and says, Dad, I, I, I don't want to be here. Will you give me what's coming to me? And uh, the, the dad, I don't understand this part of the parable, but he gives that portion of the inheritance, and the son does the most predictable thing in the universe. He blows it. He blows it bad on himself. It gets so bad that a little Jewish boy who's not supposed to even eat pigs, much less touch pigs, finds himself taking care of pigs and wanting to eat their food. That's how bad it gets for this kid. And here's where I want us to pick up. Verse 17, it says, When he came to himself, your Bible might say, when he came to his senses, notice where his mind goes. I don't think we catch this all the time. He says, People at dad's house have it better than I've got it. People at dad's, slaves at dad's house, servants at dad's house have it better than I've got it. So let's connect the dots here with what we're saying today. Do those 350,000 people, 330,000 people, think that we have it better than they have it? See, because almost everybody in Burlington, the 15,000, 16,000 folks in your one-mile ring, almost everybody in Burlington knows somebody sitting here. Do they think you have it better than they have it? Or do you seem to live in the same bondage to decay that they live in? You don't have joy. You don't seem to have peace. Your life melts down, you melt down. Something doesn't go your way, you get fighting mad. Guys, if we're going to see life change out there, they've got to see it in us. They just have to. Our job is to provide such a desirable atmosphere in the church that uh, people look at us and just say, wow, we should be the warmest, welcomingest, is that a word? <laughs> Nicest most loving, most kind people in the world. And where people are down and out, they, or, or up and out, they, they see us and they say, I don't know what they got. But it's different than what I have. I'll never forget uh, when I was pastor of that first church, when, you know, as the youth minister, the custodian, the lawn maintenance guy, the, you know, the song leader in a pinch, you know, the pastor sometimes, you know, when I was that guy, uh, I was leading youth group on Wednesday night. And of course, I, told, I tell everybody, I know the key to youth ministry. Two girls who love Jesus. You know why? If you have two girls who love Jesus, you usually have seven boys. 
kind of works that way. You know, I mean, it's just amazing how God grows a youth group like that. But anyhow, <laughs> he uses all things for his glory. But anyhow, our youth group had two girls who really loved Jesus in it. And before long, we had five or six guys coming to our youth group. Well, one guy who was coming, we'll call him Billy. Billy was coming, and I noticed it was during the summer he started coming. Every Wednesday night he would come. We had Bible study at my home. He would go and stay with Chad, okay? Well, no big deal, but school started, and Billy every Wednesday night would come, go stay with Chad. And I said, hey, what gives? He said, well, Nick, did you know I'm Catholic? I said, no. He said, well, my mom doesn't know that I'm coming. And so I just tell her I'm going to stay with Chad. And I said, oh, Billy, we got a problem. You're, you're supposed to live under the commandments of God. And he says, you're supposed to honor your father and mother, and you need to tell your mom what you're doing and be honest. I knew that was risky, but I knew it was right. And so um, a couple weeks later, I'm at the IGA, and I see Billy's mom storming across the parking lot. And I thought to myself, Oh, boy, here it comes. <laughs> and uh, she said, Pastor Sanford, Pastor Sanford. I said, yes, ma'am. I want to talk to you. I said, I thought you might. And um, <laughs> she said, uh, Billy told me that he had been coming to your house for a Bible study. I said, yes, ma'am. She said, I really appreciate you telling him to come talk to us. And I said, well, ma'am, I thought it was what was right. And she said, well, you know we're Catholic. And I said, yes, ma'am. And she said, but I want to tell you what, what happened. And I said, okay. And as she said, Billy, the other night, he came to me and he said, uh, Mom, I've been going to Bible study with some Baptists. And she said, Billy, you know we're Catholic. And he said, Mom, I know, but if you let me keep going down there to that Baptist church, I promise I won't believe a word they tell me. <laughs> what, what was it? He found a place where he felt loved. You know? That, that should be us, an attractive place, like salt of the earth and a light on a hill. That's what we're to be like. Um, guys, the cross is offensive to people, and I just want to tell you, the cross is offensive. We don't get it because we lose sight of that because it's beautiful to us. You know, in the old rugged cross, so despised to the world, it has a wondrous attraction to me. We don't get it. You know why the cross is offensive? Because the cross says you're not good enough. I mean, that's what the cross says. Jesus from the cross said you're not good enough. You're not good enough to go to heaven without me. You can't make it. You'll never be good enough. Quit trying. You're not going to make it. You won't do it. But while the cross is... And if you don't think that's offensive, go tell your waitress this afternoon. Preacher said you're not good enough to go to heaven. That'll offend her, I promise. Now, while our message can offend, because we say nobody's good enough, and by the way, I'm the leader of that line, the not good enough line, I'm the head guy. While that message might offend some, we shouldn't offend people. We, we should be warm and nice and welcoming. Now, let's, let's move forward. Look what happens. When, when, the, when the shepherd finds the sheep, he finds it. He lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. He calls his, his, uh, everybody to his home, his friends and his neighbors. And he says, rejoice with me, for I've found my sheep which is lost. The lady finds the coin. She calls her friends and neighbors, and she says, I found it. 
I found it. The father's waiting. The son comes home. When he sees the son far off, he turns to his servants. And he says, quick, bring the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his finger. Put sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf. Let's have a party and celebrate. For this son of mine, which is dead, is now alive. Which was dead is now alive. And he that was lost is now found. And they begin to celebrate. And there is nothing like when people's lives are changed. It's a beautiful thing. You know why it's beautiful to me? Because I know what it feels like. I know what it feels like to feel empty. And then all of a sudden to be full. To feel lost. You ever been driving and been really lost and all of a sudden figured where you're at and you feel so much better? Amplify that by a cabillion times. Cabillion's a bunch, by the way. Amplify that by a cabillion times and you, you understand how a lost person feels when they have that lostness lifted it's a beautiful thing Uh, guys I just want to tell you how beautiful it is not everybody likes it and the point of this Luke 15 is not that man this would be a great place for the story to end but it's not where the story ends because Jesus is trying to say hey religious people I'm talking to you he tells a story of an older brother I don't have it on the screen but you can go home and read it the older brother says I've been coming to church all my life I've been good. I've been working on the farm. I've done the right things. I hadn't wasted your money, and you're celebrating for this clown? I mean, that's the story. And so here's the point, guys. If a church moves their focus, you'll have to deal with criticism. Sometimes it comes from outside. People say, how dare you share your faith with me? I mean, my goodness, you know how stupid that is? We believe that we have something that holds water. Everything in this life leaks. And we believe that we have faith that lasts even on our deathbed. That's like, and people say, you shouldn't share that with others. That's like saying you shouldn't share a cancer treatment. That's horrible. We've got the best thing in the world. Of course, we should, we should be nice. We should be kind. We should be welcoming and loving of all. But, but of course we share so yeah, we're going to get criticism from outside, but sometimes, like the older brother, we get criticized from inside. They're sitting in my seat. How dare you spend money on them instead of on me? I don't like that kind of music. I don't want that. I don't... Ooh, that's older brother mentality. We've got to be careful. Now, if we're going to deal with criticism, we're going to have to work hard, we've got to shift our priorities, why in the world would we do it? Well, it's easy, because God cares about lost people. God's not sitting up in heaven saying, man, Nick did a good job today. He doesn't care. He's not sitting up in heaven and said, Man, did you hear how Kent rolled that right at the end? Oh. Sorry, brother. He don't care. He doesn't care that the little kids were cute. And they were. Doesn't care. He doesn't care that your Sunday school class went off without a hitch or that you... He doesn't care. He doesn't, I can promise you the angels are not looking over his shoulder and he's going, did you see that? But I'll tell you what, when one person gets saved, the Bible says that the angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner who gets saved. Now, if you don't understand saved, here it is for you. The bondage of decay is taken away and now you've got something that holds water in your life. Your sin is gone and no longer are you in line for the wrath of God. You have hope for life after death and hope that this life will change for peace and contentment and joy. You have that type of hope. That's what we mean by saved. And when somebody gets it because they find out that the cross is beautiful and not offensive, when somebody gets it because they trust God instead of themselves, when somebody gets it, the angels stand up and applaud. 
because that's the main thing. Now, why do we share? God cares. And we share because we know what can happen to people. I'd love to tell you the end of Lisa's story. I didn't tell you because she said, I have too much stuff to give up. That's what she told me. Because she said, what would I have to do? I said, I don't know. I said, that's up to God. She said, would I have to change my life? I said, maybe. I don't know, that's up to God. And she said, I have too much to give up. I sure wish I could tell you a different ending to the story, but I can tell you a different ending to another story. A 10-year-old boy who a couple by the name of Melrose and Lucille Hazelwood saw that their parents didn't take them to church. His parents didn't take him to church, and so Melrose and Lucille stopped by my house. And they said, can we take him to church? For two years, I went to Sunday school and church. I have no really re real reason why I went, except God must have been tugging on my heart. And I accepted Christ from about four rows back on a Sunday morning. I gave my heart and life to Christ and said, man, I knew what it meant to feel empty. You might say a 12-year-old boy doesn't know it. I knew it. Yeah, I was this tall and pitching baseball and winning games. I was making good grades for a change because I thought that would fix it. I was trying to be good and make my parents happy. That was harder, but I was doing better. But it wasn't fixing it. But when I gave my life to Christ, all of a sudden I found something that's held water from 12 to 45. And the best I can tell, it's going to hold water forever. That God loves me. And Jesus died for me. And if I surrender my life to him and deny myself and let the cross do for me what I can't do for myself, cover my sin, then I can have hope. You can too. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the opportunity to share this morning. I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would take these words and would use them for your glory. God, I ask, Lord, that you would uh, speak to hearts that are lost and draw them, Lord. Help them to know there is hope. There's a hope that endures. There is a peace that endures. There is, there is life, Lord, that endures. God, if there's somebody here that's not saved today, Lord, they don't know if they're going to heaven. They don't know if you live with them. Lord, they've not even known for sure if you're real. God, I pray that you would speak and do that thing that you can only do in a person's heart. And God, that they would trust you. God, if there's a person here that needs to be baptized, I pray that you would encourage their heart. That they have the privilege of standing up and saying, I believe. God, if there's other work that needs to be done here today in people's hearts, I pray you would do it for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name I pray.